Hello and welcome to the JCBC Podcast. My name is Sean, and I'm so grateful that you found our podcast. Listen, the JCBC Podcast is a collection of several sermons that have been preached over the years at Johns Creek Baptist Church. I pray that as you find these sermons and you listen to them, they would meet you where you are in your journey. And I trust that God will do something in these words to lift up your head, if only for a little while. So go ahead and subscribe to us and follow along. Anyone can be afraid of something sometime. So Brad was five years old and his mother said to him, Brad, I would like you to go to the, the, the pantry and pull out a can of soup for mom. I need a can of tomato soup. But Brad was terrified of the pantry. It was one of those walk-in pantries with no lights. It's dark. It's scary, kind of creepy. He said, I don't want to. It's scary in there. She said, oh, there's nothing to worry about. Go on and get mom a can of tomato soup. And he said, I don't want to. And they went back and forth a couple of rounds. And she said, baby, listen, it's okay. Jesus will be there with you. And so mustering all the courage he could, Brad moves toward the pantry and he creaks the door open slowly. And, and then he had an idea. He said, uh, hey, hey, Jesus, if you're in there, uh, could you hand me the can of tomato soup, please? <laughs> so you, you and I are prone to fear something. Anybody can fear something sometime. It's not just those who have no heart or who have no courage, even the bravest among us. When George Patton was interviewed after World War II about his courage, his bravery, he told a reporter, he said, look, I'm not brave. I am as cowardly as everyone else. I was never near battle or never heard a gunshot without my palms ringing with sweat like everyone else's. Anybody can be afraid of something and sometimes that's not a bad thing fear at times is what keeps us alive right it's what keeps us safe it was our ancient ancestors right who, who would walk out of the cave and when they saw a big cat walking out of the bush you know with a head the size of a Volkswagen and teeth the size of their arm it was fear that kept them from running out and, and becoming dinner, right? It, fear can keep you alive, but the very thing that at times can keep you alive is the very part of you that can keep you from actually living. See, we're in this series during this time called Resurrection, and I've been making this audacious claim that you really can be alive. That Jesus said, I came that they might have life and have it to the fullest. It is absolutely possible to experience right here and right now in this life a foretaste of heaven. We can live alive. And our lives can be teeming with grace and beauty and reconciliation and hope and love. And yet, and yet, because we realize that the resurrection life is a way of life, that leads us into risk, then sometimes 
there will be those around us who never experience the full aliveness of resurrection because we are afraid. We are afraid to take the risk that Jesus calls us to take in his name. We are afraid to go. We're afraid to connect, afraid to speak, afraid to receive, afraid to change, afraid of what is unknown, even though cognitively we know that faith It's the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. The truth is there's still a part of us that is so afraid of what is not seen that we will recoil and retreat to the the caves of our safety, never actually walking into the way of resurrection. Yeah. In fact, this is what I want to talk about today because I look around our world And you don't have to look far to find very frightened people. There is fear everywhere. Don't get me wrong. I mean, it comes off as confidence. (laughs) It comes off as as confidence and, and, and energy and presence. But in reality, what we are seeing in this highly divided, schismed world in which we live is fear at the base level, fear of one another, fear of change, fear of the other. And I gotta tell you, the Bible is crammed with one story after the next, with one song after the next, one poem after the next, one experience after the next that attempts to tell us in our contemporary context what to do with our fear. And if we could put the whole sum of the Bible into one message, it would be that the the whole arc of the message of the Bible is don't allow your fear to cripple you to the extent that you don't actually experience the life that God has provided for you. If we could summarize the message of the Bible in one sentence, it would be this. Do not be afraid. You know all these stories because you went to Sunday school, right? Or even if you didn't go to Sunday school, you know some of the stories of the Bible, but I'm telling you that every episode that we study through Scripture is not simply a historical episode that we are meant to learn for cognitive reasons. We are meant to live into them as experiential people of faith. So, no matter where you look in Scripture, the theme is the same, Abram. I'm calling you to leave your home, to leave the land of your fathers and go to a land that you've never seen because I'm going to make a story out of your life. But to do this, Abram, it means that you're going to have to relinquish everything that was ever familiar, every pattern, every tradition, every way that gave meaning and shape to your life. It's going to be different in this other land. But do not be afraid. To Jacob, he said, look, Jacob, your brother is on his way to meet you. He's on his way. He'll be here in the morning. And he's coming to talk about the thing that happened between you. And I know over the last 20 years, you have wanted to just stuff this thing into the closet, lock the door, and throw away the key, just kind of assuming that if we don't talk about it, everything's going to be fine. But Jacob, you got to realize reconciliation cannot happen 
until you name the thing that tore it apart. But do not be afraid. To a young Moses, he, he comes to Moses and says, Moses, I want you to do something that will rock the world. It will change the course of human history. I want you to join with me in liberating an entire people from Egypt. But it's not just a Sunday school story, Moses, that I want to make out of your life. I want in you for every future son and daughter of mine to see that they don't have to be afraid. Because what you're about to do, Moses, is more than simply liberating a people from bondage. But I'm calling on you to join with me in strategically dismantling every system of oppression that keeps one group of people in a position of power over another group of people. And, and if you think that's going to be hard, listen, it's worse than that. <laughs> because when you're going to go to Egypt and, and you're not going to be received by Pharaoh or the Egyptians because they seem to believe that everything is just fine, that this is the way the gods have ordered it, so you won't be affirmed by them. You'll be rejected by them. But here's what's worse. You're even going to be rejected at times from the very ones you're there to set free. Because sometimes it takes a while for the enslaved mind to be free. So Moses, you're walking a tight line. But do not be afraid. He comes to David, and David's there facing Goliath. And we know the Sunday school story. We know the five smooth stones and the sling. We know the story, and it's a powerful story. But he's, he says to David, look, what you are walking into is more than just a fist fight. It's more than just a battle in space and time. The reality is you and I now know that the Philistines had come across a new technology. And as the Bronze Age had turned to the Iron Age, the Philistines had come along and discovered a new kind of technology that allowed them to heat their weapons at a higher temperature, forming a new technological advantage over their enemies. And David and the Philistines represent the old way the Philistines trembling in their boots because what do you do when you recognize the world is shifting and an era is turning a page and you don't know the new rules of the new world? And God says, do not be afraid. Or it's the same message through all the prophets because the prophets had the same kind of call, which is to stand in the middle of a people and tell the truth even though it would get them rejected. See, prophets in the Old Testament, contrary to popular belief, were not fortune tellers or future tellers. To be prophetic is not to simply predict the future. To be prophetic means to stand and to speak truth to power and to be rejected for doing so. And there's this beautiful passage that we find in Isaiah that gives God's reassurance to every prophet to not be afraid. I've called your name, the Lord says, you're mine. When you're in over your head, I'll be there with you. When you're in rough waters, you will not go down. When you're between a rock and a hard place, it won't be a dead end because I am God your personal God, the Holy of Israel, your Savior. I paid a huge price for you. All of Egypt with rich 
Cush and Sheva thrown in. That's how much you mean to me. That's how much I love you. I'd sell off the whole world to get you back. Trade in the creation itself just for you. So don't, don't, don't be afraid. For I am with you. It was the first words that were spoken by the angel to Mary and to Joseph. Do not be afraid. And it was the last words spoken by Jesus to the disciples when he was leaving them. Do not let your hearts be troubled and neither let them be afraid. If I step back and look at the whole sweeping message of the Bible, it is a summons a summons to every human in all ages, in all places, to not be afraid. In fact, it's been said, if you take that phrase, do not be afraid or fear not or do not be alarmed, all through Scripture it occurs 365 times. That's one do not fear for every calendar day in your year. Except except on leap year, of course, which, which I suppose you could be afraid on leap year. But every other day to not be afraid because you're not alone. And if there were ever a time when our world could use this sweeping summons of Holy Scripture to not be afraid, it's right now. Our world is gripped with fear, gripped with fear at every turn. And it may not look like that because we have confident, uh, maybe not also, not, not always competent, but confident people on all sides of every issue just barking at one another about what truth is and about how we ought to abide and exist with one another in all of the division that you and I see. We see confident people, but beneath it, there is an abiding fear, a fear of the unknown, a fear of the loss of control, a fear of the other, a fear of change, a fear of not knowing what's around the corner. During this quarantine, for example, we have all been confronted with fears at different levels, different kinds of fears, some a physical fear. I mean, those who are most susceptible and vulnerable have a legit fear about catching this disease, right? But it's not just about catching the disease. It's, it's a fear over the economic impact that this quarantine will have on our, our culture, our families. It's a fear of how far into my retirement and savings do I have to dip now because I've lost some income. And it's a fear of what happens post-COVID, to my business, to my family, to where we can live. To what happens to the church? See, I, I talk to a lot of pastors all through the week, and there is fear, even in a post-COVID world, about where we see the church going. I, listen, we all know how it's kind of nice to watch worship in your jammies and have coffee right i mean it's kind of nice <laughs> but the truth is what is awaiting us around the corner after covid 
But it's not just COVID. I mean, these last three weeks, we've been talking about some serious matters, some seriously worthy conversations in this country about race. And this racial division and this this inability to hear one another from the position of one another's um, experiences, this division means that many of us fear, some fear that things will never change. Some fear that even though this feels very different than before, even though this is a heightened sense of consciousness now, like maybe there never has been, there are some who fear that nothing will change. And there are others who fear that everything will change. And it causes us to move to our corners and And then you put that on top of the reality that we are living in and have been living in for some time, this kind of powder keg politically where there is this divide and no one can seem to bridge the gap between them and them, between us and you, right? And and you and I know we're about five months away from a big election and already you, you can hear every camp going to their trenches digging in deep, preparing for the bloodbath that is to come, all out of not a sense of confidence for the future or vision or hope as a nation, but rather out of fear of not having control, a fear of change, a fear of the unknown. Because at the end of the day, we don't know with certainty what is around the corner of COVID or what's just over the hill of this racial and political divide. But I am here to tell you as your pastor, I have a confidence of what is around the corner, just over the hill, around the bend from all of this. And I say to you, it is resurrection. It is resurrection. Because you and I have this conviction down in the core of us that resurrection means that one thing must die and in the dying of that one thing, there is a resurrection, a coming to life of a new thing that is intended by God. And we've been in this study these last several weeks recognizing that we must be willing to let a part of us die in order for Christ to raise us up to something new and whole and full of life. And I am saying to you, I'm thinking about all this fear that's all around and I'm, I'm seeing it and hearing it differently. What if all of this fear that we see in the country and fear that you see in one another's uh, neighbors, what if it is a, somehow a signal from the soul? What if the soul knows that there is something around us and in us that must die and we are afraid and we are holding on because we recognize nobody wants to die Nobody wants a way of life to die. Nobody wants patterns and and familiar comforts to die. Nobody wants the thing that we work so hard to build to collapse. But the gospel of Jesus Christ is this. Nothing rises until it first dies. I wonder if fear isn't the birthplace of resurrection. What if there is something afoot? What if there is something happening all around us, potentially happening all around us that could lead not to more decay and division and destruction, but what if the thing that you and I are watching happen right before our eyes is the beginning of resurrection? And Jesus said, I came that they might have life and have it more abundantly, but I love that middle word, they might have life, as in they might not. 
They might not, because unless a seed falls to the ground and dies, it remains a seed. Unless you and I are willing to allow our fears to show us, like looking in a mirror, what it is in us that must die, then we will remain in our fear. But Mark tells a story in his gospel, a story of resurrection that is unlike every other gospel story of resurrection. So there's these two women, and they're on the way to the tomb in chapter 16 of Mark. You heard Michaela read it earlier. And they're on the way, and they're like, okay, who's going to move the stone? It's pretty heavy. And they get there, and the stone's already gone, and there's this man in white, and he says, you're looking for Jesus, who was crucified? Well, he has been raised. Now go and tell somebody. And and then there's this really interesting verse that, that, that happens in verse 8 of chapter 16. And I, I just want you to see how it emerges out of a, an atmosphere of fear. Verse 8 reads this way. So they went out and fled from the tomb for terror and amazement had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. They said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Now, listen, back up for just a moment, because I'm going to tell you something about the Markan version of the resurrection story. In your Bible, if you're looking at a Bible, you're probably going to see that the the gospel doesn't end with verse 8 in your Bible or mine, right? But if you look closely, you'll probably see that it's been been printed with a a kind of clue, It may be that everything that follows verse 8 has brackets around it. Or maybe it's italicized in your Bible. Everything that follows verse 8 is either maybe centered in the middle of the column instead of left justified. Well, it's doing that to say to you that everything after verse 8 was added. That the original or oldest versions of the gospel of Mark that we have that exist stop at verse 8. Now, what follows verse 8 is some really cool things. I mean, like drinking poison and not dying, handling snakes and all kinds of stuff. But the reality is the oldest versions of the gospel of Mark end in verse 8. Why? Well, it's believed that the scribes later added some more after verse 8 because the oldest ones we have end with verse 8. But they, after time, you, you know that Mark is the oldest gospel. And Matthew and Luke borrowed from Mark to write the core, uh, the heart of their Gospels. But when they wrote their Gospels, which came much later than Mark, they added the endings that are more uh, dramatic. There are ascensions and, and declarations and commands and so forth. But Mark doesn't end that way. And so the scribes, their job was to take copies of Scripture and copy them, transmit them, like a like a scanner of the ancient world, they would word for word copy them so that new communities and new churches would have a copy of that gospel. And it's believed among the most respected scholars that I know that there were scholars who would read Mark, and now that Matthew and Luke had come along, well, gosh, Mark's kind of missing some really important things at the end and would begin to add them to the gospel of Mark. I mean, it happened in the Old Testament and the New Testament both. Scribes would hand a copy, and then they would see that the last scribe uh, maybe had a subject and verb out of, out of place, and they would correct the grammar. We have evidence of little notes in the margin about from one scribe to the next, 
helping clean up the language and even the, the word order or grammar of the Gospels or the, the, the sacred text as it moves along. So scholars back up and say maybe everything from verse 9 to the end, verse 20, is added by a scribe. But what I want you to know is that there were decades in the first and second century, decades in which churches existed. People were born, they grew, they died with only the copy of Mark that ends in verse 8. Now, why does that matter at all? Because I'm telling you, there are some for whom the resurrection story in the Gospel of Mark ends with they fled from the tomb for terror and amazement had seized them and they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid, period, close the cover, end of the story. I mean, and even in the English versions that you and I have, uh, we hear it this way. The verse ends this way, uh, for they were afraid. But if you look at the original Greek text, the word order is always different language to language, right? But in the Greek text, it literally actually ends this way. They were afraid for, for decades. Christians who have been stewarding the resurrection story, have a copy of the Gospel of Mark. And the Gospel of Mark, the resurrection story, ends with, they were afraid for... And it ends in a sentence fragment. The great preaching professor Fred Craddock said of speaking of that reality, that it ends with a sentence fragment, that the whole Gospel story ends with an incomplete sentence. He says... That's no way to run a resurrection, in my opinion. But think for just a moment about why it's happening. Why would Mark have a copy of the gospel that ends in a sentence fragment they were afraid for? Well, some believe that because the, the, the texts were written on scrolls, rolled up and carried around uh, from church to church, from city to city, it's believed that the edges were destroyed the edges were frayed and began to fall apart the fragments we just know this for certain the fragments actually did fall off of different parts of sacred scriptures there are copies that you can see that and so one theory is well it ends in a sentence fragment because the rest of the sentence was worn off in transmission right could be but i think there's something even more powerful than that the truth is Anytime in Scripture when there's an unnamed character or an undiagnosed uh, disease or a sentence that ends in a fragment or a story that's not quite resolved, it is an invitation from the writer of that story to invite the reader of that story to finish that story with their own lives. They were afraid for, for what? They were afraid for the very same things that scare you to death. They were afraid of what is unknown. They were afraid for the unknown. They were afraid for taking risks. They were afraid for change. They were afraid for the relinquishment of control. They didn't know how the story was going to end and neither do you and neither do I. So the question is, what are we afraid of? What are we afraid of? 
Is there something in you that is driving you to do the very same thing that the women did in the story? Because when they saw the thing that scared the daylights out of them, you know what they did? They ran. And that's exactly what you and I do when we are afraid of something new or something that is risky or something that is beckoning something in us that we're not sure we have. We run Sometimes we run away and go back to our cave or we go into our bunker to the place where easy answers and familiar, easy, quick comebacks come to mind and we're able to kind of secure ourselves by all the things that used to secure us. But what if resurrection means you don't have to run anymore? What if contrary to everything that is in our, our, our instinct, You don't have to run from the thing that frightens you. What if resurrection says the running is over? In 2 Timothy, we hear these words, for God did not give you the spirit of fear. That comes from somebody else. God did not give you the spirit of fear, but of power and love and of a sound mind. The word for power in that verse is a great word. The word is dunamis. Dunamis means resurrection powers. Where we get the word dynamite, it's explosive. Dunamis is the kind of power that at the dawn of time, when uh, the Spirit of God hovered over the watery chaos of nothingness, it was that kind of power that pulled creation out of chaos. It's that kind of power that moved into this room that was locked with scared disciples, frightened about what's next, unsure about how to take a new move in this new world where they don't understand the rules, and the power moved into that room and empowered them to change the entire story of humankind with the gospel message. It's the dunamis power of God that raised Jesus from the dead. See, dunamis is the power that sees dead and dying things and brings them to life. And God did not give you the spirit of fear, but God gave you the spirit of power and of love and of a a sound mind. That means everything that you will ever need to walk into the realms of the unknown, you already have. It was given to you when Christ broke free from that tomb and walked into new life and invites you and me to walk into the same new life. Yeah. But in order to walk in newness of life, we must first die. I mean, right here and now, dying to self, dying to ego, dying to all the patterns of fear that keep us in one trench lobbing rocks at the other people in the other trench, fearing, hearing a story that might change, fearing opening up our own story that might change someone else. The spirit of resurrection is calling you to die to all the things that used to comfort you so that the Christ, the living, breathing Christ of God may rise in you. Is that something that needs to happen in you today? I mean, is it possible that right where you are, you're listening to what I'm saying and you're like, yeah, I would love to live fearlessly. I would love to get to the point where, where I don't feel so angry anymore. And I thought it was anger, but maybe it's fears that, that kind of masquerades as anger. 
And I don't want to have to get to the place where I have to have all the answers and I have to fix all the problems, but maybe all of that fixing and all of that answering is masquerading a kind of fear in me. I don't have to look all tough the way I keep looking tough, but maybe the toughness is an exterior that's hiding a fear in me. Maybe I don't have to sing and dance. Maybe I don't have to perform. Maybe I don't have to do a thing except die and let go and allow you to to raise me up to a newness of life that I cannot construct on my own fearlessly living. If so, maybe, maybe you need to pray this way right where you are. Simply pray these words in your own heart. God, I recognize there are so many things I do that may be driven by fear. I recognize, God, there may be so many things that I do that come off looking confident or come off looking angry or come off looking a thousand different ways because I can put on all kinds of masks. But God, I recognize there is a fear in me and I don't know what to do with it. But you tell me that I must die. So here I am. I am yours. I lay down my weapons. I lay down all of my pain and my woundedness. I lay down all of the parts in me that want to hold on to what I've got so that in letting go, you can show me what resurrection really is. I confess that I need you. I confess that I'm not enough on my own. So I will follow. Forgive me of my sins. Cleanse me in mind and heart of all that that makes me run away from resurrection and draw me to you even now. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Now, if you've prayed that prayer just now, just know that that is the first of a powerful step on a powerful journey. And that is that Christ heard you. And now you need to tell somebody about that. And I'd love for you to tell me. Tell one of your pastors. Tell them, email me. Call me. I have an email address. I want you to email me at sking at jcbc.org because I want you to tell me your story about how you have prayed that God would remove the fear in you in order to reveal the power of resurrection that is in you. But wherever it is that you go from here and whatever it is that you do from this moment, My prayer for you is that Christ would go before you to prepare your way. May Christ go behind you on the days that you fear and feel like retreating to encourage you one step further at a time. May Christ go to your right and Christ to your left, abiding even closer than a sister or a brother. May Christ go above you. On the days when dark clouds roll in to remind you there is one, There is one above the clouds who at the end of the day has the final word. May Christ go beneath you, girding you with confidence and removing all forms of fear. But may Christ mostly go in you, transforming you from the inside out until your hearts beat in rhythm with his.